You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so happy to be speaking with Donald Hall. Thank you. Donald, welcome. Welcome to... It's good to be back here in Ann Arbor. <laughs> when was the last time you were here, Donald? When was the last trip? I, I think it was fairly recently, 2004, maybe for the Ann Arbor Book Forum. Before that, in 2001, I did the Output Lecture. Oh, okay. So since I moved out. In 1975. In 1975. I don't know how many times I've been back, back here. Jane, my late wife, Jane Kenyon, grew up here and used to come and see her father and mother, her father when he was ill. And her brother is still here. I saw him this morning. Oh. Uh, so we came back for family reasons and also for literary reasons. Mm, so you've always had had a kept a connection with Ann Arbor. Yeah, and, and we have friends here. I do. Friends. 
Yes, and well, and you, and this is where you both met, in, and you yes. were married in 1972. Then, right. judges, um, chambers, in Ann Arbor. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, that's yeah. right. And we were just right before we we started taping. We were talking about your 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 very well known textbook, Writing Well, um, which is um, like many things about you, Donald. It stood the test of time. It's a lasting. Um, uh, peace, writing well. <laughs> it helped, especially at the beginning, of growing freelance. Uh, Did that's it? That's when it began to uh, came out and when it began to sell, and uh, it helped. Uh, it was giving up uh, tenure here, cradle to the grave, going freelance entirely, and this was a nice beginning for it. Yes. Well, I wanted to to ask you about that. What, you know what? Maybe what we'll do is I'll read a short biography sure. and then we'll fill in some pieces and come back because that was a big a big thing you did when you decided to to leave Ann Arbor in tenure, as you said. It was terrifying for, for a life of a poet. So yeah. terrifying. And maybe that's what you needed, at, or maybe that's what Absolutely. every absolutely the best thing I ever did. Okay. So we'll, okay. We'll, okay. So without further ado, um, as as way. For a poet that, that needs no introduction, really, um, Donald Hall has published numerous books of poetry, most recently White Apples and The Taste of Stone, selected poems 1946 to 2006, The Painted Bed and Without Poems, which was published on the third anniversary of his wife and fellow poet Jane Kenyon's death from leukemia. He has also received numerous awards, including the National Books Critics Circle Award, the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and two Guggenheims. Um, and, and Donald, you were also appointed the Poet Laureate, uh, consulted in poetry to the Library of Congress, which we usually call the Poet Laureate of the right. United States. Well, and, a bill was passed to change the name and make it the Poet Laureate. Oh, just to make it, because yeah. that's what we all called it anyway, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And that was 2006, was it? Your 2006, seven. Um, often people take it for two years. I could have stayed a second year. Mm. I didn't really feel I did very well at it, and so I gave it up after one year. Really? Actually, my successor, Charlie Simic uh, oh. from New Hampshire, also did just one year. I think Kay Ryan, President oh, yes. Laureate, is uh, doing two years. Oh, okay. What was it like? What did you ha have to do? That was—is it sort of like being the, you know, being crowned Miss America, and suddenly no. <laughs> you're the spokesmodel of all poets? Or <laughs> the first reading was sort of celebratory. Mm -hmm. um, the first reading is poet laureate, uh, and uh, that was fun. And there were lots of people there I knew. My children flew up for it, unbeknownst to me. I didn't expect to see them there. Oh. And that was lovely. And. Uh, but then the duties afterwards uh, uh, weren't very exciting. I got a couple of prizes and so on. Do another reading. The English poet laureate Andrew Motion came over to the Poetry Foundation up the lager, and he and I read together. And there was some fun. But actually, I had hoped to do more as poet laureate. What do you mean by that, Donald? Well, Robert Pinsky uh, mm. started the favorite poem project. Um, Robert Hass started the Poet's Voice at Weekly Column. Ted Cruiser did more than I did. It was not a good year for me, uh, physically actually, and uh, I did not do nearly so much as I want. At one point I thought we had a radio series going, but we didn't. That's a long story. Oh, well we could start that up, Donald, uh -huh. if you want. We're, we, can, we can do that. <laughs> 
Uh, but so, but so, and then the year just turned. It turned out to be sufficient. I felt disappointed in myself uh, and not doing enough, and I did enough. To is that I get? Is that um, is that normal though? Do you always? Are you always a little too hard on yourself with with this? Or I uh, funny question to answer about oneself. Uh, <laughs> and about on a writing program, right? <laughs> well, I uh, uh, I'm always uh, talking about high ambition and so on. But if you look at me and said and asked. If I knew I was any good, really, or going to last, I would not be able to tell you yes. I, uh, I don't. I, I have known poets who have said to me, "I know I am great. My, my poems are going to last for hundreds of years." When and did they I say would, it, Donald? Like when would they? When they were quite conversation, and uh, <laughs> I would want to say, uh, uh, "Take it easy. You're okay. You'll feel. You'll feel better tomorrow." Because uh, they're feverish. <laughs> well, because they're saying that, because they think they're terrible. Uh, and I, uh, I do not know the quality of my own work. I, obviously, every time I write a poem, I'm trying to do something perfect. And maybe at one point, I, I think I've done it. But then I kind of dread, I dread it when a new book comes through the mail, because when I open it, I'm going to find something I wish I could change. I, I think I was reading somewhere that you actually said there was a, a, a poem in particular, you were somewhere giving a reading, and on your way to the reading, or, or the way back from the reading, you actually, it was maybe 30 years between writing yep. the poem, yep. and you thought, ah, that's what, that's what I need to do with that one. I've done that a number of times. Uh, when I'm going to a book before a reading, thinking of what I will read, maybe a few hours before the reading, uh, I made revisions in a printed book. I just did that this year with a couple of poems and then read them that night with the change. Yes. And, and what is it that you, that you suddenly know? Is there a way to describe that experience when you're looking at the thing you've made and you know something more about it or something yeah, different? Suddenly I realized that uh, this word isn't quite right and that word is a single word. Uh, and it might be because of the way it fits with other words around it uh, or something about the rhythm. I remember with one poem, uh, I made a change that was, I thought, a rhythmical improvement. And no poem is ever finished. I mean, it, I, I can always imagine doing something to it before I print it another time. What, what does it mean to, um, to hope for a poem, a poem that can never even be finished, to be lasting? I'll tell you, I don't think there's a, a single poem in the English language that I adore uh, by Andrew Marvel or Thomas Hardy or Robert Frost or Yeats where I can't find, where I cannot find something I wish were different. Uh, there is no hope. I was agreeing about this with a poet friend of mine one time. There is no poem that is as good as poetry ought to be. So, so how do we write then, Donald? Like how with do we hope, uh, with hope and uh, possibly foolishness, but hope and desire and love of the art and wanting to uh, be a part of this art. Because you knew when you were very young, like you, even before 14, was it? Donald, yeah, at 14, you, I was thinking. Because you had, um, 
you were reading Edgar Allan Poe? Was that was it? at 12. Oh, that was at 12? Yeah, yeah. And I wrote my first poem uh, trying to be as morbid as Poe. But when I was 14, I got pretty serious. And I came home from high school every afternoon and shut the door in my bedroom and worked on poems. Uh, and I don't mean I worked on anything that was ever any good, but I was trying. And I really decided this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And I'd gone and done it. Uh, but saying all that doesn't mean that what I've done is worth it. I, I, I can't claim that. I hope so. This is not a big deal. Yes, it's, but it reminds me of a poem that Merwin wrote um, that I actually just read um, to, with my class yesterday mm -hmm. that he wrote for Berryman. Like it was, um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, when he talks, of, talks about Merryman and, and what he, it was a way to talk about, I think, even what Merwin feels about write the writing life yeah. and he puts it through the voice of Bar like what Berryman taught him oh. and and at the end he says um, like he asked like well how do I know if I have anything I ever write is going to be any good and he says you can't know you'll never know if Absolutely. you have to know you don't write right but, but what you did is, like, you knew what you wanted. Something about, what was it about the poems and the, the language of poems, Donald, that captured you, that made you know, know that that was a vocation? I think the first thing was the sound of poems, the, the sensual body of, of poetry. Uh, then um, the uh, embodiment of uh, feeling by means of this uh, sensual body. And I, uh, but I was continually drawn to the noises that poems make. And when you say noises, like what um, I'm is trying that not talking? To be pretentious, you know. Yes. When I say noises. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, you're succeeding. <laughs> <laughs> and it's also more intriguing to say things like noises, like the noise it makes, because it also um, it makes it feel like pay attention in a way that if you're when I read a poem silently. I hear every word in my head. Uh, I don't read uh, oh, the newspaper that way, or I never read the newspaper. I, I, I scan, uh, but uh, with poetry, I mean, it's the best prose, really. You need to slow down, read more slowly. And one way with poems is to hear, or perhaps prose, is to hear every line break, every assonance, um, every get in piece of the uh, sound of it as you're reading in code. And I, I actually think that's better to do it in your head than to read them aloud because reading aloud you will make mistakes. There is some pitch you will want to remove. And doing it in your head, like a musician composing without a piano and so on, you uh, uh, more purely uh, uh, apprehend the wholeness of the poem. Uh, we were talking about ambition and uh, oh, wanting to be great knowing you can't be the other day. I'm, um, just now I was talking about Henry Moore, the sculptor. Yes, uh, I love him. Wrote about. And Henry woke up every morning wanting to be better than Michelangelo and Donatello. And he went to bed every night knowing he wasn't, but determined to get up and do it the next day. And and that's the artist, is it? That's the determination is what? Yeah, the determination and somehow the uh, gusto for the art that continues to make you want to be superlative. Uh, 
but also the good sense to know that you're not necessarily getting there. And to keep going. And to keep going, absolutely. And I think it's the love of the art that would keep you going more than anything else. Not the love of oneself. That's not strong enough. Not the love of oneself. No, I don't mean that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not proclaiming total modesty here. I say it's, it's not what drives you. Right. It's the love of the art. Yeah, and recognizing and and recognizing that you found um, your particular art, because and when you found poetry, do you think is it possible that people don't find like people who can have that dedication to the art don't find it as early as you did? Like what and what does that mean to find it so early and and see the transformations? Because there was something that was even written, Donald, that said, and I think you said that some people, or maybe you felt this way, that when you came into your own as a poet, it was like at the age of 46? Uh, yeah, I think that uh, there were one or two poems. I put too many in my selected poems, too many earlier ones. Uh, I think I found myself uh, uh, largely with, with a poem called Kicking the Leaves, which uh, was written in Ann Arbor, but sort of looking forward to being in New Hampshire. I, I knew I was going to be there the next year. Uh, and uh, I began to write more poems in that particular vein. Every time my poetry has changed, it has changed, first to my knowledge, by a change of sound. Uh, I was writing short lines with lots of gem and lots of monosyllabic uh, long uh, syllables, you know, diphthongs. And uh, I changed. Uh, these um, uh, poems were very lyrical, but they sort of excluded the world. And the world began to come back with, kick, with kicking the leaves. And then there was a lot of the world. And I uh, wrote about it very excitedly. People um, reviewing my book or my collected poems tend to think that, that this is when I pass the border. There are a few earlier poems that I still cherish, I guess, but most of them I don't. I had a whole book, my first book, when I was 27. It's about 127 Exiles pages. and Marriages? Right. And I dislike almost all of it. And maybe that's not uncommon for writers to dislike their early work. But of course, I think I'm right. Well, since you're such a man of revision, and, and even from a young age, the rewriting was something you did, and you say like 250, 300 times of working with a poem yeah, to make it that, like, does that mean is, but would you ever look at that exiles and marriages and and think, well, well how do I rework, would, would you ever rework that, or is it something of that time? That's too, and of I, yourself then? Too, too much longer ago. Mm. Uh, a couple poems there where I've um, changed a title or something uh, that are all right, but uh, not seriously going back into it. And what I dislike about much of it is um, what seems to me a, um, a pursuit of uh, metrical uh, niceties at the expense of anything else. And that uh, uh, I, I really repeated myself again and again, maybe I still do. But uh, in, the, in that the poem was uh, about its own pentameter quatrains more than about any subject. Mm. 
and which you and which is what you valued then and you and you said that sound is what yeah. draws you yeah. in yeah. and so it makes sense that you would work within those forms of sound first right they were what was around me at the time uh, I, I came out of uh, a generation which wrote metrically uh, with Alan Tate who was a lot older but uh, well, Richard Wilbur and early Robert Lowell uh, were mentors really uh, and that seemed to me for about 10 years where to go back because you uh, I was reading Donald where you even had um, like uh, I think it was Frank O'Hara who he he was actually doing doing like working outside of that model yeah. a bit bit earlier and then even when you were doing being the editor for the Paris Review and when um, Alan Gidsberg had sent you a poem and since it was outside of what you valued and what you right, felt was right. I was a damn fool no, but, uh, no. no I, I was uh, I was protecting my own citadel ag against the uh, barbarian invaders, you know. And uh, after a few years, uh, we started to meet each other and talk and become friends. And uh, I could uh, read them uh, sometimes with enormous admiration. Uh, oh, Robert Creedy, Gary Snyder, Alan to a degree, but not to such a great degree. Uh, but. Uh, there, there was a time at the beginning there when I, when I was uh, from sort of self-protective urges. I was uh, very anti-beat, uh, and I regret it, but it doesn't but, make much difference. But in a way, when you think of that you, you went to Harvard, like, and then and then with going to Oxford as well, and coming up with, is it Phillips Exeter Academy, like where, where you were, you can understand like this was what was surrounding you, and that was yeah. your immersion. Yeah. I wrote Freeburst uh, until I was at, uh, at least almost entirely, until I was 17 at Exeter. And it was during the war, and the uh, teachers were all oldest. The young men were away almost entirely. And the teachers tended to, to think that, uh, oh, Elliot, Pound were terrible, and the only good poet uh, was Robert Frost, which made me think that Frost wasn't any good, but yeah, I, I know he's very good. And uh, there was a poet called Stephen Vincent Benet, whom uh, everyone thought was Poe's successor as a great poet. And so I, I rebelled in um, talking with them and arguing with them. Some of the poems I was printing, but I began to write. Uh, in regular verse, and I, uh, regular verse, the old metrical verse. Uh, I wonder if uh, some of me was in fact influenced by what I thought I rejected. It could be. Uh, and then, uh, oh, uh, actually Frank O'Hara did not write poems at Oxford, I mean at Harvard, as far as I knew. Later there were some earlier ones that turned up. He was a short story writer at that time. And John Ashbery was uh, one of the best of us, probably. And uh, writing, not, not the way he does now, but with an, a wonderful, kind of exquisite fineness. And uh, others of us, Adrian Rich was, was writing in the conventions of the time, much unlike what she became. Robert Bly was writing pentameter lyrics and pentameter narratives. Uh, and uh, most of us changed. 
Jim Wright was not at Harvard, James Wright, but uh, he was a uh, friend of mine and somebody I admired a lot. And he um, wrote uh, metrically, just brilliantly. And then it was Robert Bly in particular who argued him out of it. <laughs> Jim still liked the metrical forms, but if he sent me one, he would say, don't tell Robert. <laughs> That's great. So it was like subversive yeah, metrical yeah. forms, it right? It became subversive, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I like the sound of that. And then, so with, um, when you, so when you were here in Michigan, Donald, what was, um, what, what, what sort of poems were you were you writing? I was then? beginning was, really to write the ones I uh, like the kicking the earlier, leaves yeah. with the short lined enchantment and okay. lots of long vowels and so on. I began with that, and toward the end of my time here, that began to grow stale on me, and I I waffled around uh, trying to find uh, a way to write something that uh, would convince me. Uh, I, I more or less visited older things I had done and tried them again, didn't work. And there was only one of the uh, the style I just described uh, during that late period which worked. And then one day I began to write Kicking the Leaves and that just opened the world up again for me. And that began on South University in Ann Arbor. Uh, but then I carried it with me to uh, to Eagle Pond. Could, could we talk a little bit about that, where you made that choice? Yeah. You had tenure here at the University of Michigan, yeah. so that was a, a security unmatched for many poets. And 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 you were married at that that time to, to Jane, Jane Kenyon, um, and you both you both decided because your and your grandmother had died, and so the family farm came. To you, is that is well, that how it goes? The little order of things okay. was that uh, uh, Jane and I both loved New Hampshire, the farm, and the countryside, and I decided I had a contract which said I could take unpaid leave anytime I wanted to, and I had begun to accumulate some money, so we decided to take one year of unpaid leave to New Hampshire and go to Dorian. But by October, Jane was saying that she would chain herself. To the, in the root cellar rather than go back. And I really wanted to live there. I was just frightened of how to make a living. Uh, but I followed her. I really followed her uh, into doing what I always wanted to do. But uh, it was her passion and her lack of anxiety which helped me. Her family in Ann Arbor were all freelancers, musicians originally. So it wasn't such a terror for but I had a family, I had a father who had a family job which was quite secure, and I grew up with that security and found it again here. And uh, I gave it up with, with uh, as I say, terror. But I also um, worked very hard and enjoyed it. I mean, I was, I was writing 10 hours a day, not all poetry. I'd work on poetry first thing in the day, and then go on to work on children's books and essays and book reviews and uh, all sorts of things for all sorts of places. And um, with, is, was the ox cart, because that was one of your children's yeah, books yeah. that won a big award. Right, right. Um, and then, and then um, William Bolcom here, at, who 
here at the university, he also set that to music then, too? Yeah, he set a, a version of it to, oh, okay. to music. He set a lot of Jane. He set much more of Jane. Uh, oh, he did? He did, yeah. Oh. But he set uh, three poems about it, all of which were New Hampshire poems, I think. And then the poems become something new in this new form, don't they? Yeah. Somehow, yeah. Yeah. they're new again. I just went down to the uh, last uh, earlier this year to the Guggenheim, where they had uh, commissioned uh, seven contemporary composers to do poems, to do uh, music to go with my poems. But they were not settings. Uh, they were equivalents or. Uh, 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 attempts to get at it by repetition and so on, something that was essential to the poem. Oh. And so I'm very ignorant about music, and the first night I was quite bewildered, but it was two nights, and I began to get more of it. It was great fun. Oh, it sounds it. Yeah. It sounds, um, and, but you, but you decided to, to stay at the farm, and you got, was the terror part of what also you believe, I mean, I, I guess how can we ever know, but when you said it's something changed here, when you, you know, kicking the leaves, is it something that then was able to really come into its own, because now you're at Eagle Pond with Jane, and it was almost like you had made, to, to leave the academy, is it something that, it was as big as it sounds. Taking the Leaves um, was written when I knew that I was spending the next year in New Hampshire. And I think that was part of it. And it talks about the uh, country life. To begin uh, talking about walking home from a football game in Ann Arbor. But later on, it gets to the country life. I think that some part of me knew that I was going away for good. Uh, often, poems know things before the poet does. Actually, what uh, happened uh, that year, I meant to fill in what I left out before. When Jane and I arrived for a year, my grandmother died at 97, and uh, I had told my mother and my two aunts that I would like to try to buy the house after my grandmother died, not before, but after. Uh, and so uh, when Jane uh, convinced me to stay there, for, uh, I uh, had set in train the buying of the house, and I wrote to the Department of English here and resigned. And they sort of spoiled that by refusing my resignation and giving me another year's leave of pay. But my mind was made up, and uh, I something had changed never, in you. Uh, I, I never thought about it again. I mean, I just went ahead. I thought a lot about how I was going to make enough money to support us and pay the mortgage. Uh, and the, the first few years were sort of scary. When you're freelancing, you don't know today how you're going to pay for your groceries three months from now. But uh, after a few years, I uh, developed uh, the knowledge and uh, I don't know how, but somehow I will. And uh, so I stopped being scared. After a few years? Two or three. <laughs> Two or three. Uh, well, let's I adored it in the meantime, even though I was scared. Well, there's something about being scared also that you know you're really you're really alive too, because you're not just settling into something. It's right. not. I think same. it was good for me because uh, well, I enjoyed teaching, enjoyed the classroom. 
whole lot. The way things were run uh, at the university or the department often annoyed me. But I loved working in the classroom and teaching. But it wasn't so hard as it had been at first. And uh, perhaps I was getting into that uh, state that many professors do when they just sort of block things up and throw away the key and um, be really fairly repetitious for the rest of their lives. I think perhaps it was in that way a good thing for me to move. I uh, missed my students, but going around doing poetry readings, I have question periods a lot, which is a lot like talking with students, but you don't have their papers to correct uh, afterwards. <laughs> At any rate, I think it was a good time to change jobs. You know, people change jobs in mid-career, in middle life, and it's often um, a very happy thing to do. I, I was still, I was writing poetry in Ann Arbor, writing poetry in New Hampshire, but my uh, source of income was teaching. And then my source of income was uh, writing all sorts of things. Because you've written essays, um, children's books, yeah. the biographies. Was Henry Moore the first biography, Donald, that you wrote? Because you've yes, written a couple of biographies. Yes, yeah. And then later I wrote one of the uh, baseball pitcher, <gasps> Doc Ellis, who just died a year ago. But uh, he was a wonderful man, and I, I loved baseball, and so did Jane. So we had the opportunity to spend a good bit of time with the teens and talking to them. And that was fun to write. The book never sold, but uh, I collected some essays about poetry and about baseball. See how confusing. <laughs> poetry about, and baseball. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, about um, baseball and uh, did a book of essays, which did pretty well. And it, it seems like it's always overlapped because there's even that, that story of you and, and Robert Frost playing softball together. Is yep. it bread loaf, was it, Donald? 1945. 1945. Well, let's take a short break. Um, you've been listening uh, to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Donald Hall. We'll take a short break and we'll be back. <laughs> Thank you. 
Hello, welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today I'm so pleased to have Donald Hall here uh, talking with us. Um, I should actually mention that uh, Donald Hall is here uh, to commemorate Day Without Art, um, December 1st of every year. Um, it, it began in 1989, and the University Museum um, the University of Michigan Museum of Art um, commemorates this day by bringing in a special uh, speaker person. <laughs> and this year we're so lucky to have Donald Hall here. Um, Good to be here. Thanks for coming, Donald. Um, and will you read, will you, you're going to be doing a reading yes. to, later today, but, um, but we'll be actually airing this tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so if you wouldn't mind reading a poem uh, or or a, a couple, that would be wonderful. I'd like to read a couple. Uh, and I don't think I'll be reading them tonight. So the, the first one was very important to me. And I wrote it uh, early in the time I was in Ann Arbor. And it was important to me because I had the, the delusion that you should know what you were writing about before you wrote it. And that's a fatal delusion, because frequently the, the kind of hook of language will pull you into something which is mysterious to you that uh, later you may understand, or maybe somebody else will point it out to you. Well, uh, one day I began this poem, the first few lines. I didn't know what I was talking about. And then I wrote a few more lines. I knew the sort of form and sound that I had, but uh, I wouldn't begin to paraphrase. And I'd rather not today, for that matter. But I'll read um, The Long River. The muskox smells in his long hair, my bow coming. When I feel him there, intent, heavy, the oars make wings in the white night. And deep woods are close on either side where trees darken. I rode past towns in their black sleep to come here. I passed the northern grass and cold mountains. The muskox moves when the boat stops in hard thickets. Now the wood is dark with old pleasures. Lovely. Now, is that the Huron? No. <laughs> or is it the, the Detroit Huron. River? <laughs> no, no, no. It was all in my head. It was. And, um, but that uh, was one of the early ones that tended to, to emphasize the, the long amount of syllables and so on. I didn't know I was doing it. And later it got more pronounced. Uh, but um, it was uh, the first poem where I had to let myself go to language that was carrying me and that um, I eventually, uh, and other people eventually, acceded to or um, understood, perhaps not in the sense of uh, paraphrase, but in the uh, receiving of the feeling. There's another one that I wrote in Ann Arbor, but much later. And I read it now because it says I will never be able to live on the farm. And it was uh, uh, written uh, 
Yeah, only a few years before things turned around, and I was able to go there. And it's called Mount Cusart, and that, uh, you know, it's, it wouldn't be a mountain in the West, it would be a foothill, but it stands up, and uh, it's uh, a beautiful thing to look at from the front of, of the farm. And I, as a child, and going to visit there, I had always loved it. And I wrote this poem about it when I thought I could never possibly live in the house. Great blue mountain ghost, I look at you from the porch of the farmhouse where I watched you all summer as a boy. Steep slides, narrow flat patch on top. You are clear to me like the memory of one day. Blue, blue. Top of the mountain floats in haze. I will not rock on this porch when I am old. I turn my back on you, Kirsard. I close my eyes and you rise inside me, blue ghost. That's lovely. So, because that was your way of saying that it's in you. So it's okay. You're, right. It's with you, it's, it's, even I'm, if you're not. Not necessarily. It's okay. Well, not okay. <laughs> I do keep it inside me. It's always, it's always there. Yes. Uh, but now I'm with it inside and with it outside. Which yes. Is, which is perfect. Yes, which is the, just the right balance yeah. of it. Um, and I think there was a moment that you also um, were thinking about your grandmother when you were, were um, when I was reading. I think in the Paris Review. Uh, interview that you gave Donald where you, you said there was a moment where you realized um, that she was had been here and looking at it as you are and and then one day someone else will also be here yeah. looking yeah. at it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was my great-grandfather, my grandmother's father who picked uh, it and he was a sheep farmer during the Civil War, when sheep farmers probably made a lot of money. And in 1865, he moved, moved uh, to the River Valley farm. His sheep were pasted on a slope. It's now a ski slope where he had the pork farm. But he moved there, he said, largely because of the view of Kearsarge. It was available. There was a, like an, an old cape built in 1803. And then he built in, 19, in 1865, back from it, he had a big family. So it's the long stretched uh, New Hampshire or New England farmhouse uh, now. And she grew up there and never lived anywhere else. She had three daughters, all of whom moved away. But one of them, the eldest, who was my mother, I think made it pretty sure that her only child, her son, uh, would love the place she had come from. I think she uh, probably influenced me. And possibly one reason I loved it when I was little was to please my mother. I don't know. But uh, I did fall in love, especially with my grandfather, who was a great storyteller, wonderful storyteller. And he also recited pieces. Uh, these were things he learned to recite at school and for entertainment of other young people. They would be <coughs> The young people of Danbury would meet every couple of weeks and uh, 
who play the piano, sing, have a debate, and have someone, or many people, recite pieces. And pieces were long, usually funny, maybe very sentimental poems. And the, uh, the one example that, of, of the kind of piece he used that you, you'd be likely to recognize is Casey at the Bat. Uh, and, but there was... Again, warrior. baseball. Yeah. <laughs> he loved baseball. And uh, he followed the Boston Red Sox with a newspaper that was two days late. And we couldn't listen to them on the radio. They were all afternoon games. And if um, it was raining in New Hampshire, it tended to be raining in Fenway Park. Uh, so uh, we would hay every afternoon uh, when it wasn't raining to miss the Red Sox. And on Sunday, you could not turn on the radio in my grandmother's house. Oh, because of religious reasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So he read about, uh, he went down once in the 90s to, uh, it was before the Red Sox, but to see the professional baseball uh, played. And then in the 1940s, uh, uh, I guess, uh, my father drove him and me down to Fenway Park and he saw his second baseball game of his life. Ted Williams playing right field. Have you, do you, um, do you go to see baseball very often, Donald? Is it something that you keep up, like, going to the, have you been to Fenway? Like, uh, yes, I, uh, right now it's too difficult for my old legs, uh, but I took a grandchild there several years in a row. And I, uh, Jane and I went down. The first year we came, 1975, the Red Sox were in the World Series. And I was writing uh, sports at that time and new sports writers. And one of them got me two seats to the first game of the World Series. I can't beat so, that. <laughs> so Jen and I went down and saw the Red Sox win the first game. And of course they lost the seventh game. Oh, Red Sox. Yeah. <laughs> My brother, um, Eric, loves them, too, so I know the travails. <laughs> when I was living in Ann Arbor, I followed the Detroit Tigers. Oh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Rawr. <laughs> years when they won the World Series. So baseball is grafted in, onto you. Yeah, it's, I began when I was very young. Mm. Um, people at that time took Sunday drives a lot, and uh, in the spring and fall, my father would put on the radio to uh, the Brooklyn Dodgers. We were down in part of Connecticut, Australia coast to New York, and Red Barber uh, told about the games. And my mother and I both uh, fell in love with baseball by listening to it on the radio. Because then it's imagination, too, of what's happening, right, yeah. with the radio. Yeah. Yeah. No replays. No. Um, no. Yes. No. <laughs> I don't listen to the radio now, I, I watch on TV. But um, that began long before TV. But, um, well, maybe we'll go back to writing a little bit. Sure. Donald, with, with, your, with your writing process now at, at the farm, what, um, what is it like? What's, what's like a, a day in the life at the moment? Well, uh, I'm not writing uh, book reviews or... I've been trying to write children's books, but since Jane's death, I've been unable to, and I, just, I can't make sense of that particularly. Uh, 
I finished the prose book Unpacking the Boxes a couple of years ago, and since then I haven't been working on prose to speak of. I've had to do a couple of things. But I work on poetry every day. Uh, and what I do is revise. I seldom begin anything. But uh, I work over ongoing uh, poems, and I do revising. I, I don't like writing first drafts because they're so terrible. But uh, What's so terrible I'm about it? <laughs> sloppy. No, um, no, no um, conclusiveness to it. Uh, lots of bad language that I haven't noticed yet. And, um, oh. But, but, but you know what? But it seems like if you, because you already know yourself, if you already know that it's going to be um, coming across your desk 250 or 300 times, yeah. you have, you must, yeah, you must know that you have to get your raw material somehow, yeah. pull it yeah. together. Yeah. And, and where are the, where do you, where are the myst like, what sort of mysteries are you? Uh, like what comes, what comes to you? Is it when you're, you're out in the farm, and that's, or is it when you're at your desk, um, or are you finding the mysteries when, in the revision of what what you've started to build around? Or often when I've been working on something in the morning, uh, I will find the word flashing into my head, uh, you know, eight hours later or something like that. So, I think I've been. I've been thinking about it all the time, but I didn't know. You've been mulling and, uh, it. This uh, is the preferable word. I may have had some doubt about what I had there before. And of course, it's not only single words, it's phrases. They're um, matters of syntax and matters of punctuation that occupy me when I'm, when I'm at the desk or sitting in my chair working. And sometimes I'm driven to the thesaurus where I, uh, I find a, the best word often, not in the synonyms, but a column or two away. Something that is close, but does something that the synonym does not do, or the original word. Uh, and uh, that's a useful tip, I think. Yes. Uh, and you can see the joy in it, that just when you speak about it, Donald. Really? Like the joy, yes, you can yeah, see. Yeah. In some ways, I think I like it best the best, the more, the more tries it takes, the more revisions I make. I really love um, uh, carving away, making little changes here and there. That really pleases me. And then finally, uh, I can't think of anything more to do with it. And I've shown it to other people, and they don't have any suggestions, or at least any that I agree with. And uh, I have to send, send it off to an editor. I think in many ways, these are my children, and I hate it when they go away to school. I want to keep them around. And when you, well, when you do, so when you do send them away, though, Donald, now, like, what is, what is the response, like, does anyone, have you ever worked with anyone that you felt, like, understood your, your poems, like, as an editor? Because you've been an editor for, for other people. Um, uh, or is it more like you you have a community of a few friends that maybe I have and, and Jane, friends who tell me more. Editors often say uh, yes or no, and uh, or they say yes, this is wonderful, uh, and that's very nice, but uh, it's not particular. And uh, seldom do editors reject 
saying uh, what's wrong with what you sent in. One editor has uh, recently, and recently in the past year or two, and I was able actually to take his comments back to the poem and improve it, and I could tell it was improved. And then I sold it to another good magazine, actually. Um, but uh, he had led me that way, and I wish more of them did. But I do have friends uh, who uh, would read and uh, comment and give me help. And ones that you well trust now. Yeah, but I don't, um, you know, you never take everything no. that everybody tells you. Because well, you know inside, don't you? Sometimes, <coughs> no. like, if it doesn't, you can, because you're saying the poem is a bodily thing. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are, um, even with Jane, uh, there are characteristic things that she would do or that I would do that the other was always going to object to. I objected to her extended verbs, you know, uh, were uh, uh, beginning to arrive instead of arrive. <laughs> but that's an exaggerated example. And I learned uh, repeating words from my love, life of Yeats, love of Yeats. He would repeat them in a pattern of whenever I repeated for Jane Cross and I, so, I, so we sort of learned to ignore that part of each other. And that can be true for anybody. One time I remember sending a poem to Louis Simpson and Robert Bly on the same day. And both of them replied oddly on the same day. <laughs> and each of them said that this poem was going to be good and uh, half of it was really good and half of it wasn't. And they had the opposite halves. So I walked up and down being frustrated for a long time. And then I read the letters more carefully. And I learned from both letters and made a poem, which was, um, neither of them was the poem that the other had recommended, but, but both in fact had contributed to it. Mm. And uh, I think this still happens. Everything kind of lessens when you get older. Your friends die off. I mean, there are people who uh, used to read my poems and help me out who aren't among us anymore. And also you have to know when you are 81 years old as I am, that nobody yet has ever written his best work past the age of 80. Even um, Frost wrote two and a half good poems after he was 80. Hardy wrote many nice poems, but not his best work. Hardy lived, they both lived to be 88, I believe. Uh, so that's all right. You just have to put up with it and do the best you can. And uh, maybe I'll be the exception. It's true in this life, and, and it's, you've, you've truly made this life of living in and with poems. Yeah, my whole life, yeah. And even when I was 14, picking up what we were speaking about earlier, nobody was looking at my poems, and nobody was recommending revision. But when I came to the end of some intolerable poem about being a mysterious figure walking the streets in the night, you know. I would go back to the beginning of it and start revising it. I, mean, I did that uh, uh, from the beginning, uh, from when I was 14, at least. And uh, I don't understand why I did it. But it seems a habit that was uh, uh, there before I uh, knew it was a habit or knew that you ought to do it. Yeah. I wish more people did, more. 
Well, in a way, when you're saying that, Donald, I almost think, because um, reading some, some things about you, that the, when you went, returned to New Hampshire, you returned to, um, you started going to church because it was part of the, the yeah, village yeah. life, in yeah, a way. Yeah, it was a, uh, a culture. And, and so, but then there's something about the spirit, of course, that even if you're in an organized uh, community the space, it's still about the, the spirit. Um, uh, um, and I'm wondering if there isn't a way that maybe you're linked into something even at that young age. Like you already knew this, like this idea of revision, and you. Yeah. It's strange. I, I came on everything else gradually, but that was there first. And uh, then I, you know, I found modern poetry, and uh, I began with uh, Poe and Keats, and uh, then was writing as in a romantic diction and so on. But then I found, with help, uh, the, the great modern poets, Eliot and uh, Stevens and so on. Yes, and, you, and, then, and your voice, and your own voice. Well, I hope so. Yes. It took a while. Thank yeah. you, Donald Hall, very much for ta to, to speaking to me today. I've, I've loved every moment. Thank you. Um, it's been fun. You've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Donald Hall. Until next time.
the middle. He's got a man caught. Touchdown, Michigan. Adrian Arrington wide open in the back of the end zone. Over the middle. And Michigan marches right down the field. No problem. They have the lead again. It's 37 to 35. Four wide receivers. T-bone in the shotgun. Moore lined up to his right. He's going to throw for it. Pressure coming. He's rolling to his left. Still looking, still looking. He's going, he's throwing down. He throws up a prayer. He's got a man, and it is incomplete. Michigan's going to win the 2008 Capital One Bowl as Lloyd Carr's last game as the University of Michigan head football coach. You're listening to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN 88.3 FM, your home for Michigan sports. All right, welcome to this lovely Wednesday afternoon slash evening here, January 13th. Got a decently slow news day. We got some Lane Kiffin news in front of you. Got some John Beeline news in front of you. But to get things started here in studio, we have Seth, Chris, and John. We will start with Seth. Ready?